This is Voices. Each week we'll be asking our storytellers to come in. And our theme this our theme this Hi, is for I'm Maisa. I'm trying to record a proper introduction for this episode, and I'm doing it for the first time. And it's hard because doing things for the first time can be hard. It's uncomfortable. It can be scary, but it's also about discovery and newness and facing fears. We like the idea of first time so much that we asked a few people to come in and tell us about the anxiety and the euphoria and the uncertainty associated with doing something for the first time. Today you'll hear voices share stories about catching stage fright at an open mic and dealing with pulling the trigger. All that and more next on Voices. Yeah. No more trouble. I'm Maisa Plant Graham from Uncoded Media. This is Voices, a weekly series featuring black storytellers across the Pacific Northwest. Each week, invited guests come into our studio to share true personal stories related to a specific theme. This week, as I mentioned, is all about first times. The first voice you'll hear belongs to Day Shik Kim Hawkins Jr. Day tells us about how his struggle to buy his dad the perfect gift led to the revelation that will change both of their lives forever. Like, my dad knew he was black, but like, I mean, he could have been anything. You know what I mean? People say he looks like the, the Asian Lionel Richie. A lot darker skin than me, um, and he lives in Hawaii, so he gets a lot of that sun. You know, I'm convinced that people in Seattle are three shades lighter than they actually would be anywhere else. Hmm. You know, it's a much science project. But um, like every time he speaks Korean to Korean people, people are just like startled. Like, what? Like, how did you learn that? And he's like, What are you talking about? Like, I'm Korean. I'm from Korea. You know, and every time he he meets a, a, a black person, they're like, oh, where is this like accent coming from? And it's just very, very confusing for, for people. But what it's left my dad with is, you know, where does he call home? You know, where does he kind of identify? My dad, he grew up in Korea, Korean War. Um, his mom lived in a village that had a lot of uh, military army there. And um, all I knew, and, and I, th I think all my dad knew too, was that um, he was a, his dad was a young black soldier um, from the States, um, started dating my grandmother, a native local Korean woman. Um, she got pregnant. Um, did he know? I'm not sure, but uh, he eventually went back to the States. Uh, my grandmother was uh, pressured, you know, and in a lot of ways, understandably so, to get rid of the baby, just because, especially being pregnant with a, you know, a mixed black baby is, was as anti-black as, 
East Asia still is. I mean, back then in the late 50s, it was like, you're not doing that. And so her family gave her an option. You know, it's uh, you keep the baby and you're disowned from our family or you get rid of the baby and, you know, we'll help you kind of process all of that. Um, she wrestled back and forth from what I've been told and uh, she decided to keep my father. Obviously, I'm here. <laughs> Um, you know, my dad was born, um, and my grandmother's family was um, not speaking with my grandmother for a while, and my grandmother um, couldn't really take care of her son, my father, adequately, so she he bounced around orphanages and things like that, and they eventually reconnected, but he always wondered, like, you know, who's my, you know, who his father was, and where did he come from, and you know, some years he believed that his dad died in Vietnam and other years he believed his dad just kind of bounced after finding out that um, his Korean girlfriend was pregnant. My dad eventually um, immigrated to America, ironically, to escape racism because that's what Hollywood said. The death of Muhammad Ali was really uh, impactful for him because that was the only other black guy he saw, and it was on TV when he got to watch his fights um, in the in the TV in the town center in Korea, and and so you know he he thought in his head like if Ali could make it, I can make it there too, and so he he moved there. Eventually, took his mom with him, and they bounced around different states, and eventually settled in Hawaii, and where he met my mom, uh, a Korean woman from a small farm in South Korea. You know, my dad, I think, resisted for a long time finding out more about his father. My grandmother uh, passed away a couple years ago, and I think after her death, and now that my dad is turning 60, um, he kind of just assumed, you know, and I think now is like my father probably passed away already, and I think it's safe to kind of start exploring and see what is this whole half of me, right, that I've not even come in touch with um, and so I think uh, uh, not too aggressive but like a slight journey began to find out who his father was and we started getting more clues after I, I bought this uh, Groupon I know don't make fun of me for um, ancestry.com <laughs> so I bought it and I was like okay cool I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna be honest, I bought it and I didn't tell my dad and I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. And I, I did it because I wanted some hard evidence to give to my father and be like, hey, you know, you're not crazy. Like your life is not a lie, like here it is. But I was also, I had a lot of anxiety too. I didn't know what I was gonna find. It took a couple of months. I got the results in, it said like 74 point something percent Asian, some like Central Asia in there and then like 24 point something percent like African heritage. And I was like, oh, dope. I guess that makes sense. And so I didn't even think it was a big deal. And so I, I called my dad, it was probably 7 a.m. in Hawaii. And I'm like, hey, you know, I just found, I just did a DNA test randomly to find out uh, my ethnic makeup. And do you want to know? And he's he just dead silence on the phone. And I'm like, hello? And he goes, just really softly, he's like, okay, tell me. And I told him, I was like, yeah, three quarters Korean quarter black is cool. Like, there's the DNA test right here. And he goes, give me the link to the website. I need to do it. I don't know. I mean, I thought he was just curious. He wanted to do it himself. But he told me a couple weeks later that, like, when I just kind of dropped that bombshell on him, um, he felt this overwhelming sense of peace that, like, at that time, he told me 
it, it meant more to him finding this out than even finding out who his real father was because um, it was always just word of mouth. It was his mom saying like, oh, your, your father was a, a dark skinned black guy. You know, the, uh, the version, you know, when he was five years old was different from the version he heard when he was 13, from the version he heard when he was 18 um, and well into his adulthood. And so me doing this DNA test was like, here's some science behind like your life. Like this is real, like you have this DNA in your blood. And so he did it and he got his results in and it was like 50-50. And it also gave him like this red alert saying, oh, we have a very high chance that we found your son, which was me. That was like confirmation for him. Like, oh, this is legit. You know, like the, our DNA's match like 99.9% .9 or whatever, 100%. And so my dad was like, okay, I trust this. A couple months later, it pinged him again and it matched him with a 96% like possible chance that they found his first cousin. And, and you know, of, of course, there's some skepticism, like, is this really real? Like, is this my cousin? And it was this black woman, retired professor, who um, lives in Warren, Ohio. And they connected on the chat. I was um, translating for my dad, because, you know, my dad's this Korean immigrant, essentially. And so I'm writing these messages to this you know, black woman I've never met in my life. And I'm like, hey, like, I'm speaking for my dad. And he, uh, he wants to kind of connect and see, like, if there's any real, like, chance that you could be family. And so my dad eventually got her phone number. They talked on the phone. And she didn't know of anyone who could have been, like, maybe her uncle that served in the war in South Korea. But you know, she was very invested in finding out her family tree as well. So they began this one year journey um, and started digging, started searching. And um, this past Thanksgiving, um, my dad just gives me a call. I thought it was just a happy Thanksgiving call, but he just, the first thing he goes is, I think I found my father and he's alive. And it's, it's crazy. And so he lives in a suburb in Atlanta. We're going next week because it's gonna be my grandfather's 80th birthday. And the crazy thing is, is his parents are alive. 105 and 103. My, my great grandparents, it's, it's insane. Like I have a picture of my dad's dad, like we've been exchanging pictures now. He looks like they have the same smile, it's insane. I'm just trying to imagine like this 80 year old getting this call from this random niece who is my dad's cousin saying like, I think, you know, I'm your niece and I think I found your son. Um, you know, the, their first conversation was super cute. Um, I overheard a little bit of it, like just very basic questions like, hey, so how tall are you? Like, do you have any health problems? You know, like, what do you like to eat? You know, and just seeing like where the similarities are, you know, and completely disconnected. They have never met each other. And yeah, it's crazy. I don't know this, uh, this kind of mixed Asian family is going to roll through. And um, I just met somebody from Lithonia the other day. Um, and they were saying like, bro, you got nothing to worry about. You're in the South. Like the moment you step in and they know your family, it's game over. Out the gate. I look like cinnamon with brown sugar on coffee His dad recently told him that their Thanksgivings and Christmases will never be the same. This is Dave B playing in the background. When uh, when I heard him for the first time, I felt like he was going to just be, you know, the boy's a star. 
So I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing. We'll be playing a few other songs throughout the episode as well. Need the cash, quick and fast, need the quick. It's a vibe, just a vibe, all it is. I'm beginning, I'm high up on my mama, you something else. Got me beginning, I'm high up, baby. I don't know what this is. Our next voice is Keelum. Keelum's story is really about being tested for the first time. We met up with him in Columbia City to hear it. So I feel like there's a pivotal moment that happens in everyone's life, no matter what field or profession that you go into. This moment defines not only how you respond to adversity and your trajectory in life, but most importantly, I feel like it's the key factor in determining how you continue to perceive and evaluate your own self-worth. It's that moment and that first time that you realize that you are completely and utterly full of shit. So like, my story begins in those prime full of shit years, you know, the early teens. That good old 13 to 15 year old range is filled with delusions of grandeur, stirred in the chaos of hormonal soup, served hot in a cubic zirconium crusted bowl, shining with the passion of diamonds, but without the authenticity, right? And during this time, circa 2001, hip hop was on. Fire. I'm talking, this is the Jay-Z, DMX, Eminem, Trick Daddy era where, you know, authenticity is key. And, you know, everything that you had to do, you couldn't just say trill, right? You had to live it, breathe it, eat it. And me, in my mind, I was prepared to ride for that from the comfort of my suburban basement in Kent, Washington. Because, <laughs> I mean, you have to understand, like, my daddy's an immigrant from Lagos, Nigeria. And so like he literally crossed an entire ocean to seek out better opportunities for my family. So to hear that his son's dream is to be the most gangsterous gangster teen rapper out of Kent, Washington, it's, it's not exactly what he envisioned, right? But you know, I, I love my dad, you know, because he, no matter how outrageous or how ambitious my dreams were, he never stopped me. All he said was, if you're gonna do something, do it all the way, and follow through. So one night at dinner, I was attempting to explain why I hadn't turned in a school assignment. And in my very teenage logic, I told him, I said, well, you see, like, the teacher said that it was due Friday, right? Not Friday when class started. So, so in my mind, I had six more periods to get this done. And then I followed up this absurd statement with, I mean, it's not like I'm going to grow up to be like you. I mean, so none of this even matters. And that's not the closing statement that you want to give to a man who literally put his life on hold to raise a son and work a variety of odd jobs to get his education so that way he can earn enough money to bring the rest of his family over from Lagos, Nigeria to America and set them up with a foundation that he didn't have. Now, you have to understand, when my dad gets mad, like, like real mad, he just gets really quiet, gets very succinct, very direct. So he took the napkin, you know, wiped the inyo off the corner of his mouth, finished his water, 
He looked at me and he said, okay, grab your jacket. I'm gonna go make you prove it. Now, in my mind, I don't know what that means, but we hop into the car and we end up at a coffee shop in the Central District and they just happen to be hosting an open mic. Now, in reality, there was like 15 to 20 people there, but in my mind, there was at least a thousand people and it was mad dark, right? So like the only thing that you could see was the stage and there was like this blinding light on the stool. And so my dad came up to me and he was like, all right, so I signed you up, you're gonna be fifth, and I want you to perform all those raps that you rap in the basement. I was like, wait, so you're going to make me rap all of these ridiculously crude, vulgar, sexually explicit lyrics in front of a sea of a thousand people. So first person gets on stage, finishes. Second person gets on stage, finishes. Third person. By the time the fourth person got on there, like my stomach was turning uncontrollably. And then like, I just felt like tears running down my face and I just began sobbing. And then I just ran to the door. I just ran to the door and I ran to the car. And my dad followed and it was the quietest ride home. There was no music, no conversation. I just had to kind of sit there. And I realized in that moment that I never wanted to feel like this ever again. Because my dad said that no matter what you do, just follow through all the way. And I couldn't. And I told myself, I'm never going to allow myself to feel this way again, to feel like I'm completely and utterly full of shit. Kilim is a Seattle-based writer and poet. Check out his last work called Twelfth Man, Echoes of a Forgotten Race. Our last voice is Mayowa. Mayowa's story is about pushing personal boundaries and demystifying one of our country's most prominent staples. The first time I ever fired a gun, nothing happened. So I was at Wade's Eastside Gun Shop and Indoor Range with my friend Brian in it had taken me a lot to get there. Brian had been inviting me to the gun range to go shooting like the entire summer. And I was like, mm, no, that's not really my thing. I don't really want to do it. I, what do I need a gun for? Why do I need to know how to shoot a gun? No one in my family owns a gun. I don't play like first person shooter games. Like I have no interest in any sort of gun, firearm, weapons related, anything. Um, but Brian is all about the safety and security of black people. So he's, it wasn't a surprise to me that he wanted to start learning how to shoot and going to the gun range and things like that. He had been really sort of like a security figure in my life for a long time. So he would walk me to my car, walk me to the bus stop, and he would give me rides if I needed them. He bought me like a rape whistle and a mini flashlight and a phone charger. So I always kept it in my bag or in the car. And so, it wasn't that far out of left field for him. It was for me. So I was like, I don't, Ryan, I don't know. This is a little extreme. This is, <laughs> this is a lot. I didn't even know like where the gun range was. I was like, where am I? How did I get here? What's going on? But anyway, we end up at the gun shop and we were the only black people in the gun shop. So I was already like, Brian, 
right? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Why are we doing this? Why are we here? He's like, no, it's cool. I've been here before. I've been shooting for a while. Um, so I'm ready to like, teach you how to do it. And I was like, okay, Brian. Okay, I'm going to trust you. And so we signed all the little papers and all the waivers that, like, released the gunshot from liability and things like that. And I was like, Brian, <laughs> like, the whole time I'm just really hesitant. I don't want to do this. But I'm here, and I'm just like, whatever. I'm going to do it. It'll be an experience. I have a story to tell. And so we signed all the waivers. We pick out a handgun and some bullets, and they give me like the little headphones to cover my ears and some goggles to cover my eyes. And it was fine once we were like in the gun shop, but when you're headed to the gun range, you have to go through this like heavy, like solid metal door. It goes like whoosh when you open it, and it goes whoosh when it closes. And you have to walk down this hallway. And as soon as you get into the hallway, you start to hear all the gunshots, and it sounds like fireworks are going off. And I was like, Brian, what is this? <laughs> what are we doing? And you see all of these like posters that are like, always keep the gun pointed down range, make sure the safety's on, and just like these big, red, bold letters about safety procedure. And it's kind of intimidating because you're like, what happens in the gun range where like you need to have all of these like I mean it's it's weaponry but I had never seen a gun never touched a gun never held bullets none of that so I didn't know what to expect so I'm walking down the hallway I'm hearing all the gunshots and you get to the end of the hallway and it sort of opens up and there's like a little window and you can see all the people in there that are practicing in the gun range and there's a lot of people in there and they have guns of different sizes. Some are big, some are small. Some people are talking to other people while they're in there. And I was like ready to turn back. I was like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. This is scary. What if I shoot myself? What if I shoot Brian? What if I shoot somebody else? Oh my God, I don't want to do this. And Brian was very patient with me and he made me feel really comfortable and confident. And he was like, you can do it. People don't die at the gun range. You'll be okay. <laughs> Um, and so we go through the little door to get to the gun range. All the gunshots get much louder, even though I have my headgear on. Um, but we walk in and pick a little stall, and he sets up the little target sheet. And we spend about 30 minutes going through safety procedures and how to hold the gun appropriately. He takes it apart and shows me all the different parts. And he shows me how to load it with bullets and without bullets. And he's telling me little things like, you know, never point a gun at anything you're not willing to kill. And I was like, Ryan, that is extreme. And he's like, but it's true. And so we're just going through, like, getting comfortable with holding the gun. So it's small. The one that I picked was small. It was a little semi-automatic handgun, but it was heavy and it was black. And so I was holding it in my hands, turning it over, and just getting comfortable with the feeling of the gun and how to properly hold it and grip it. And eventually it comes time to shoot the gun, the first time. So I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And just telling myself. So he gives me five bullets and he tells me, okay, go ahead and load the magazine. And so you put the bullets in. It's kind of like a Pez dispenser where you put one on top of the other and you push it down and put it, push it down and inward. And so I'm putting them in. I'm like, okay, loaded the magazine. He's like, all right, now put the magazine inside the gun. So I put it inside the gun, and it clicks close. And then he's like, all right, now cock the gun so that you load the cartridge. So I cock the gun, and 
load the cartridge in and hear a little click. He's like, okay, sounds like you're ready to go. Make sure you're in your shooting stance. So my feet are shoulder width apart. I pick up the gun and put it out in front of me. I cock my head to the right a little bit and I close my eye, close one of my eyes so I can aim properly and hold the gun out. I take a deep breath and I squeeze the trigger and I squeeze the trigger and I squeeze the trigger again and nothing's happening. And I was like, man, I was so ready for this thing to go off. They told, he told me about the recoil, he told me about what was gonna happen and nothing happened. So I put it down, step away and I say, Brian, either my pointer finger is really, really weak or there's something wrong with this gun. So he's like, okay, we take it all apart you realize it hadn't been, um, the magazine wasn't in all the way, so the, the bullet never loaded, and so that's why it didn't fire. I was like, oh, okay. So do the whole process over again. He gives me five bullets, put the bullets in the magazine, put the magazine in the gun, cock the gun so that it loads the cartridge, put my feet shoulder width apart, hold the gun out in front of me, cock my head to the right, close one eye, aim, take a deep breath, and I squeeze the trigger, and it went boom. <laughs> And I was ready. He told me about the recoil, but I wasn't ready. So <laughs> the gun like almost flew out of my hand because it went upwards and backwards. And I was like, oh my God. Um, and I felt heat from, the, from firing the gun. And I felt the gunpowder like kind of settle on my cheeks and on my forehead and like around my mouth and I had seen like a little explosion. And I was like, I did not expect all of that to happen all at once. And he said, okay, so how do you feel? And I was like, uh, I'm okay, I'm gonna take a break. I'm gonna set it down and step away. <laughs> so I set the gun down, I stepped away. I was coughing, I was coughing a little bit because I had inhaled some of the lead dust. And I was thinking about all of the movies I had seen where people hold guns in like these really awkward ways. And like, I was like, that is highly inaccurate and very dumb. I don't know why you would ever hold a gun like that now that I finally fired one. And um, I was thinking about how powerful the gun was and how much getting shot would like really F you up. And like how much a pistol whip would really hurt because the gun is heavy. And I just had a whole new understanding of what it was like to hold and use a gun. And so I was thinking about all the people who have died from gun violence. And I was thinking about all the people who died from police violence. And when people say things like, oh, well, the gun just went off. And I was like, how does, it, how does the gun just go off? Because all of the stuff that I just had to do to pull that trigger, like, how does it just go off? And how many times are you firing a gun to where you don't even realize that, it's, that you're doing it? So I was thinking about all of those things and I was just, I had to take a break. I had to take a step back and collect myself. But after I made it through all of those first initial thoughts, I was like, that was kind of fun. And it was kind of cool and it felt really powerful. And so we spent about two hours going back and forth firing the gun. And so he was doing his target practice and I was just getting comfortable with firing one shot and two shots and then up to five shots. And before I knew it, I was like loading and unloading this gun and like shooting all over the place. Not all over the place, at my target, but I was shooting the gun and it was fun. And um, so we, at the end of the whole 
time at the gun range. We walk out, and Ryan was like, so same time next week? And, you know, Sundays were ladies' night, so it was 50% off for me to go. So it was a good deal. Um, but I was like, it was fun, but I don't know if it's really for me. I still don't feel like I fit the profile of a gun owner, and I didn't know that I wanted to continue practicing to become a quote-unquote good shot. I was like, I don't know when I would ever need a gun. Um, so I said, I'll think about it, and I'll get back to you. Um, and then the next week was the week of the Charlottesville protests. So I was watching TV and seeing all of these white men marching through the streets with, it looked like they had every gun they owned on them, just proudly brandishing them and wearing them to intimidate people. And I was watching the police not do anything when these protests were going on. And so that week... As I'm watching people on Facebook talk about it and on Twitter talk about it and just kind of feeling really helpless, I decided that I was going to become a good shot. And so I've been practicing ever since. Maya was a writer, content creator, and storyteller from Tacoma. She's also a producer for the podcast Hella Black, Hella Seattle. Shout out to Eula, Jazz, and Elena. And you can follow her at M-A-Y-O-W-A period underscore. At Mayowa period underscore. Next week's theme is Lost in Space. Stories about being lost and getting found. We're going to follow up with Day about his first family reunion in Atlanta, and we're also going to hear about what it's like to be in the world of black cosplay. Next week's music feature will be Shabazz Palaces. Please, please check it out. Voices was created by Uncoded Media. Our editors and producers are Ali and Maisa Plant-Graham. Voices is a part of Uncoded Media's collection of short stories featuring black storytellers across the country. Since 2016, Uncoded Media has partnered with reputable brands, world-renowned artists and chefs, and Grammy Award-winning musicians to create short-form content related to art, tech, health, food, and travel. For more stories through the distinctive lens of black storytellers, check out Uncode, our ongoing film series, at theuncode.com. Thanks for kicking with us. Until next time, peace out.